Remember the old days when we had those lavalier mics that had like wires? You remember wires? Weren't they great? Don't have those anymore. It reminded me of a story where a young man, kid came with his parents and preacher, it was, it was the old days, you know, hellfire and damnation and all that good stuff. And the preacher was fired up. He probably had a full house because that tends to do it to preachers. And, and he, was, he was going after it. And, and he had his lavalier on with the long cord and he would walk because preachers like to walk. You know, we like to move around. This is really in the way. Okay, walk over here. And, and because it was a cord, it was a wire, it was, it was a little tight, so he'd yank on it. And every time he'd yank on it, the little boy would flinch because he wasn't sure. They were just kind of up front. And he'd rock over here and he'd yank that cord, and the little boy would flinch. Finally, his mom said, son, what's wrong? He said, what is he going to do if he gets off his leash? <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully you won't feel that bad today. That has nothing at all to do with anything that I have to say. But alas... I was going to start this way. Hello, my name is Charles, and I am a technology addict. Do I have any fellow users in the crowd? Yeah, somebody knows the drill. Anyone? How many of you have a cell phone in your pocket, purse, on your person somewhere? I'm, okay, let's do it. How many of you don't? Well, that's a surprising number. Wow. Look at that. It is remarkable how much technology has a hold on us. You know, they called it a few years ago the information age, in that we are just inundated with information. But there was an op-ed in the New York Times not so long ago that said, we've gone from the information age to the age of interruption. You can't go anywhere without somebody being able to get a hold of you. I mean, you have that in your pocket, and it, it... it dings, vibrates, what all does it do? Chimes, I don't know what it does, it does stuff. And you know, and you are in the middle of something, right? You are into it, maybe you're working hard, and your phone goes off, and what do you do? Not while you're driving though, right? That would be bad. At a stoplight, is that okay? Oh, good. You know what I've learned is not okay? pull up to a stoplight, you know, kind of do my thing, and then I'm still texting when the light changes, and apparently the people around me aren't respecting my personal space, because <laughs> I'm in their way. I, I might, I might, and then I have to go, you know, there it is, but there, there are like even certain things that, that are happening to us physiologically. Um, for instance, there are people that experience phantom vibrations, like, you are so used to that phone going off that you feel a vibration, maybe because you keep it in your front or back pocket, and you check it, and nothing happened. Come on, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Raise your hand up in the air. Yep, it happens. Do you suffer from text neck? In fact, I was in the hallways of local... I think it was Medical Arts Center down by Mariners. I don't know why I was there waiting. And I was leaning up against the wall, and I was on my phone. I don't know what I was doing at the time. And a medical professional came around the corner and scolded me because I was assuming the position, right? That's not good for you. It's called text neck. Did you know that? I didn't either. Did you know that? It's amazing. It's amazing. 
How many of you, okay, let's get real personal. How many of you could have been on YouTube because you were texting or looking at your phone and ran into something? Come on. Who? Just one honest person in the whole room. Just one. Two honest people. Yes. This is the world we live in, and it's the age of interruption because whenever we get that signal, we stop what we're doing, and we look at that phone. We pick up that device. It is amazing. And here's the thing. Uh, we call it, here's, we, we want to put a, a good spin on it. We call it multitasking, right? Multitasking. I'm not good at multitasking. In fact, nobody is good at multitasking. You're saying, well, you've never met me, preacher. Okay, okay, okay. But here's what one definition of multitasking is. Continual partial attention. And when I read that, I went, ooh, that sounds bad. Continual partial attention. We're trying to do so much at the same time that nothing gets our true attention. Let me give you an illustration. Let's pretend you're watching a sporting event. Maybe it's a really important sporting event. Maybe it's your favorite sports championship game between, oh, I don't know, the Patriots and the Falcons, let's just say. It could happen. And in the middle of that game, a key juncture, like this is going to be one of the deciding moments. The person that is in the room watching the game with you would say something like, hey, pause it, pause it. I just saw something. That never happens to me. <laughs> right? I mean, why? Because in this world, we have at our fingertips this thing, this device, this tablet, this phone that we can add information. And we want to kind of like, if we could just stop the world for a few minutes to focus on this, and then we'll get back to that. Here's the problem. When we get back to that, we never really get back to that. We are so distracted. We are so pulled in so many directions trying to do something that we call multitasking as if that's the way the world works and that's the only way we can do it. What we're really doing is choosing a priority. In that moment, when we have our attention, our focus on something or someone and the interruption pops up, whether it be a text, whether it be a notification of some sort, whether it be a phone call, we choose in that moment to prioritize one thing over the other. A few years ago, well, maybe more than a few years ago, call waiting was sort of a big thing, you know? Like you could be talking to somebody on the phone, having a conversation, and that beep beep would happen. And you could put the first person on pause and go to the second person. I hate call waiting. I gotta confess. Anybody else? Okay, good. Because here's what I'm thinking. I'm having a conversation with you. We're getting, we're getting somewhere. And who is this interloper? Who is this outsider? You don't even know who it is. Well, you do now because you got caller ID. It's, who, why are they more important than me? Why is the next thing more important than this thing? Anybody check your social media at work? Wait, don't raise your hand. Last year, they say, over 650 
billion dollars of productivity was lost by companies. Used to be, you know, don't take a pen home from the office, right? Now what is it? You could check your social media account. Over 650 billion dollars they estimate lost. Time distracted. Okay, you're in church, you probably want to hear something about the Bible, so let's try this. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We usually put those four things in there. How can I love God with all of those things if I'm constantly distracted? How can I give God all my heart, all my soul, all my mind when at a moment's notice I might get a message on Facebook or somebody might text, somebody might call or an email might come up. We live in a world, it seems, that mitigates against what Jesus said was the most important thing, the greatest commandment that we could do, loving God with all that we are. So for the next several weeks, I want to talk about something in that vein. I want us to look at this idea that Scripture might present to us of how we can more fully engage with God, how we can actually be better about keeping what Jesus tells us and what Scripture shows us is the greatest commandment. We are going to start today with a verse. And then we're going to back up and look at the context of that verse and see if we might get off to a good start. The verse is Psalm chapter 46, verse 10. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10. The context is Psalm 46. We'll get to that in a minute. And then we'll go from there a few places. Psalm 46, 10. You probably know this verse. You might not know where it's located, but it's one that you've heard a lot. Um, It says this. Be still and know that I am God. This says a little bit more, but that's kind of the the main part of the verse. The main emphasis of that verse. Be still and know that I am God. Now, to really maybe get a better picture of what that means, let's, let's back up. Let's look at the whole of Psalm chapter 46 and see where that flows in the argument and see if it might, in that context, give us something that we can hold on to to be better, and to maybe combat the world that we live in, this world that demands activity, this world that demands stuff from us, this world that's always pushing us to be busier and busier and do more and more and accomplish and consume. Psalm chapter 46, verse 1, tells us this. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And then most, most Bibles have that word, selah. In fact, it shows up three times in this psalm. It's an interesting word. We really don't know exactly what it means. There's a lot of people that have looked at it, linguists and commentators that are trying to figure out, but the typical way of viewing that word is that it's basically an idea that says, okay, stop and think about it. 
And we see that three times. It's great because in this psalm, it naturally kind of divides up Psalm 46 into three sections for us. And it says it at the end of, here at the end of verse 3. It says it a few verses later at the end of verse 7. And it says it at the end of verse 11. So let's stop and think about it for a minute. The Lord is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. What does that sound like? You know what it sounds like a little bit, metaphorically to me? A typical Monday. (laughs) Now see, statistics tell us that 105% of preachers quit Monday morning. We, we wake up after a, usually after Sunday because Sunday's a big day. People show up, expect us to have something to say. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but we always talk. Yep, exactly. And then Monday comes and we're just sort of drained. And so all of the stuff from the weekend, all the stuff from Sunday, we're just, we're just ready to quit. So, so it's one of those things. And Monday, you know, Monday's funny. Monday's a day. That happens. Now, if you're not in church world, if you're like in the real world, you probably have a job, and a lot of jobs go Monday to Friday. So Monday also has its problems because you've had the weekend off and and you've been distracted and you've hopefully been able to pursue some of the things that you enjoy pursuing. You haven't had the demands of work. You haven't had all the stuff going on. You've been able to kind of check out of that. And then Monday comes and whenever that alarm goes off and you got to hit that, that clock-in moment and go to work, you know you've got all of that, it just kind of comes crashing down. All that you didn't do for the last two days, now you've got to get back to. Monday is tough. And, and you know, hopefully it's not. <laughs> the mountains falling into the sea and the waters roaring and foaming and, and, and the mountains quaking with their surging. Hopefully it's not quite that dramatic. But life does throw at us a series of unexpected things that we're never quite prepared for. And they can seem, in the moment, quite overwhelming. And we can feel helpless in the face of the demands that are placed upon us. For anyone to find themselves in the position where these things are happening meteorologically or geologically, if if you're there and the mountain's falling, you're feeling it. You're feeling it to your core and you're sensing the fear that comes with seeing this, this thing that you expected to have strength and and, and stability to fall. And again, looking at it sort of from the perspective of an analogy or a metaphor, there are things in our life that that happens with too, that we have thought, this is a pillar in my life. This is something I can count on. And there are times when those things that we were sure we could count on seem to be crumbling. And then what do we do? And into that reality... The psalmist begins by saying, there is something you can count on. There is a place of refuge. There is a place of strength. There is a place to find help. And the danger for us is that we try to find that in something that is not truly strong. That we place our faith in these things that we assumed were stable, but we find out in the experiences of life inevitably will let us down. And so the psalmist begins by wanting us to know God is our refuge and strength. 
Before we get into the realities, the ups and downs, the topsy-turvy nature of life, understand this. God is our refuge and strength, even if the world around us seems to be collapsing and falling apart. Stop and think about that. Selah. He picks up in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Stop and think about that. You know, you can see the contrast between verses 2 and 3 and then the beginning of verse 4. You can see why he'd put a comma there, a pause, a, a stop for a minute and consider. Look around you at the chaos that seems to be life. Look around you at the, the busyness and the demands that life places upon you. And then look to God. And when you look to God, the image he gives is the city with a river flowing out of it. Now, there was a literal city for the psalmist. It was a city of Jerusalem. It was a city that was the place where God was thought to dwell. In the temple, on the temple mount, in the innermost sanctuary, that holy of holies of the temple, on top of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the glory of God dwelt. And there, Israel found its hope and confidence. They knew that in that place, the blessing of God was guaranteed because his presence was there. And they had to take a lot of that by faith because you know, as you think about how they would work, that they couldn't go into that place where God was, the very innermost chamber, the, the holy of holies. And the only time that anyone could go in was just on the one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And only the one guy, the high priest, could make it behind the curtain. Everything else, everyone else was blocked out. But they took confidence that because that structure was there, and because in the midst of that structure, these symbols of God's presence and blessing were there, and on top of that symbolic structure of the ark, the presence of God was there, they were safe. In fact, they had seen God miraculously deliver them. And some people put this psalm in the context of the deliverance from a siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. I forget the year offhand. I didn't make a note of it in my notes. But, but they think this might have even come out of that. But there is also this reality in Scripture. I had a professor in seminary that calls it the already and the not yet of the Bible. That there are some things in Scripture that point to particular historical events that we can look at a context, we can find them in history and see how they relate to that. But they have a prophetic view as well toward the future time. And I think this is one of those places where this city of God isn't meant to only be this city of Jerusalem. It's not only meant to represent the temple and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. It's meant to represent the one day future hope that in that moment, no one can come against it. That while the Assyrians or other enemies of Israel may come against that city of Jerusalem, may come against that temple, and in fact, one day it would fall, 70 AD being the, the most recent time it fell and was left in the condition it is today, that this, this other city, this new city, this future city, was absolutely secure. And the city with the river, in fact, if you look at the book of Revelation, the picture that John sees of the holy city has this river 
that comes out of it. It it almost mirrors the Garden of Eden where there's the tree and the river and the picture of of paradise that one day God restores in what we call heaven in in the city of Zion. And so the psalmist points to that and says that that is our hope one day. And he even says at the end of this, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He says it again at the very end of this psalm. He wants to see that the very presence of God there is that which guarantees their safety. And so he's painted two contrasting images. The realities of this world, full of tragedy and the unexpected, the overwhelming demands that life places on us, and the picture of the city of God, of tranquility and peace and protection. And then he comes to the third section of this psalm, beginning in verse 8. And he says, Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And then here's our phrase in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see, he says, in the midst of your world, the overwhelming demands and the uncertainty that that sometimes assails us, come and see the goodness of God. Think about and look to that city where God himself sits safely enthroned and invites us to come. And think about in the, in the historical context, that God who sits there, who sits enthroned, will fight for you. And he, he, he talks about the desolations and the breaking of bow and shattering of spear and shields with fire. He talks about God fighting on behalf of his people, namely Israel, and one day us. And in the midst of that sort of imagery of war, which doesn't seem like a very calming picture, does it? It's not the kind of thing that you meditate on when you want to relax, I would guess. You ever like watched a really intense movie and then tried to go to bed? How does that work out for you? What would be a really intense movie? I don't mean like horror, I mean like, like, I don't know what I mean. What's a good intense movie? Forrest Gump? Forrest Gump, really? That is a little intense. Jenny. Okay, let's try that again. What's a really intense movie? Man on Fire. I've not seen that one. I have seen that one. It's scared. Well, can I say it scared that out of me? Probably not in church. The Born Identity. Now we're just, oh, we could go lots of places. So let's go with The Exorcist, because that's one I know. Wow. I'm about to lose control of this, I can see. So you watch that movie, whatever it is for you, just think of it in your mind, and then you turn off the TV and try to go to sleep. And your mind's racing. You got, the, you got that adrenaline kind of going through you because you've been on the edge of your seat. You've been rooting for the hero or, or maybe you've been a little scared by what's happening and, and, and you just can't relax. And it's in kind of that moment 
that this verse shows up in the psalm. He, after talking about desolations and wars and, and, and God kind of coming in, and that's an intense moment. If you're in the middle of conflict, if you are besieged, if you are feeling threatened, and someone comes to your rescue, that doesn't mean automatically you just go, oh, I'm fine. You still have that, that sense of dread or that sense of relief and the adrenaline that comes through it coursing through you, and you're thinking, how can I relax? And in the middle of that, God says, be still and know that I am God. It's an interesting place in a psalm to put that encouragement. But I think it's meaningful on several levels. Level number one, it means that I'm not God. I forget that sometimes. I mean, I don't like wake up and look in the mirror and go, oh, God, you're amazing. No, not like that way. I don't think any of us go to those extremes. But we started our men's Bible study this week, and we looked at the, the first three chapters of the Bible. The, the title of the study is unfolded, and it's going to talk about the story of God. And, and Eric Geiger, who's, who's the facilitator by video of this, talks about the creation and fall story. And he mentions particularly one of the trees that's in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know that. There's two trees, the tree of life, eat all you want, tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. Because when you eat it, you will die. One rule in all of the garden, one fruit in all the garden they're not allowed to eat. And, and, and Eric Geiger said this, he said, that tree represents something important. It represents who's in charge. It represents the one who's able to say, this is good and this is evil. And when presented with the temptation that they could make that choice, that they could decide for themselves what is good and what is evil, and seeing the fruit of the tree, and very particularly seeing that it was pleasing to the eye, that it was good for food, and desirable for gaining wisdom, what did they do? They made a choice. They made a choice of priority. Just like you make a choice of priority when the phone goes off in your pocket, or when the call waiting beeps in your ear, or when the notification pops up on your tablet, that you have a choice to make. They made a choice, and their choice on some level was we want to be able to make the ultimate choices for ourselves. We know what God said. We know he said don't. But it's pleasing to the eye. It it's, it's, looks good. It, it looks ripe. It looks delicious. It's good for food. I mean, what, what, what's wrong with that? It looks just as nutritious, just as healthy as anything else in the garden. Why this one tree? What is it about that fruit? We don't see anything about it. And desirable for gaining wisdom. I've been watching this show. Um, Maybe you watch it too. It's called Alone. Anybody watch Alone? Okay, it's over. I know the ending, but I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. But one of the things that that happens is they go out, and, and it's called Alone. I know this is shocking to you because they're left alone. They're really creative in Hollywood coming up with titles. Um, they, this time, they went to uh, an island up north off Canada the first two seasons. This is the third, third season. They're in Patagonia in South America. And they drop these individuals off. They give them 
you know, the, they give them a list of things they can take and then a choice of 10 survival items and they leave them out there to fend for themselves. And the winter this time lasted almost three months, which is really remarkable. Um, to think all alone, no human contact, um, you, nothing, you know, you have to build your own shelter, you have to find your own food, all that stuff. Remarkable what it is. And at one point, um, one of the contestants is digging a hole and he finds a bunch of roots. He says, you know, I really should eat these roots, but I don't know which of them are good and which of them are poisonous. There's some good roots out in this, this area, and there are some roots that are poisonous. And he decides ultimately to eat them because he's really hungry. He lost almost, well, I think a third of his body weight, this one contestant, in the course of less than three months. Now, that is a crash diet. Slim fast. <laughs> got nothing on this guy. And, and he makes the decision consciously, I am so hungry that it's worth the risk that there may be some poisonous roots. And I hope most of these roots are good and there's just a little bit of poison in there, right? Isn't that a great way to think about it? I hope it's just a little bit of poison. I don't want a lot of poison, I just want a little bit of poison. You know we make that choice every day? What channel? What channel do you want to watch? Oh, this is good. There's just a little bit of poison in this. It's okay. I think there's more good than poison. Oh, that's a little... I don't like that. But isn't that how we live our lives? Isn't that how we kind of make the choice? The tree represents the knowledge of good and evil. The tree represents the, the right to make the choice what is good and evil. And mankind, from the very beginning, has opted to want to make our own choices. So that's why I say the good news of this verse is that there is a God. And the better news is it's not me. Um, just so we're clear, it's not you either. In fact, should you just turn to your neighbor and say, just so you know, you're not God. <laughs> turn to your other neighbor and say, there is a God and you ain't it either. You know, just, just enjoy that. Not too much because we're in church and we're supposed to be Christian and all. Nonetheless. Be still and know that I am God. God says, understand, I am God. And that's a good place to start. That's a good thing to have affirmed to us that there is a God. That there is a God, to use another word, that I can know. Be still and know that I am God. To know that there is a God and to see that Scripture not only wants us to deal in that sort of arm's length reality, but to bring it a little closer to say, now this is eternal life, John 17, verse 3. Jesus prays that they may know you, the only true God, and your Son whom you have sent. That the knowing isn't just facts and figures. It's not some eternal quiz, which for the, the youngest part of my life, I thought was how heaven worked. Like there was, a, there was a test to get in, and I could pass the test, I'd be fine. If I knew enough answers to enough Bible questions, God would be impressed. And one day when he had to like go on college bowl against Satan's team, he would want me on his team. In fact, I, I, I have the book in my office. I found it not so long ago. The book that was instrumental in me becoming a Christian, I've told you this before if you've been around a while, is called the ABQ book. Ask me another Bible question. And it's A to Z, Bible facts and things. And I love that book. And you could ask me anything in it. And I knew it. 
I knew about God. But at some point in my life, I came to know God personally through his son, Jesus Christ. And what this verse hints at is that reality that's open to us. Be still and know that I am God. And scripture, as we see it unfold in history, takes the next step to say the God that you know is God, you can know personally. I take encouragement from that. You know, one thing that, actually two verses, I find tragic in this vein. You know, it's, it, the last two stanzas of this psalm in verse 7 and verse 11 end with the same phrase. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Jacob could use the lessons of this psalm. Jacob could really use the lessons of verse 10. Because there is an account in his life when he is sent to find a wife. And he's sent to a place called Petamaram to go find a wife because that would be an important uh, cultural thing for him. He was blessed by his father. He gets up and goes off to get a wife. And he comes along the way. It's a long journey. At one point, he decides he's tired and he needs to rest. And so he lays down, gets a rock for a pillow, and goes to sleep. And he dreams. And he wakes up. Genesis 28, 27, 28, 29 is where we are. But particularly Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. Jacob wakes up and says something remarkable. I think it's on the screen because it didn't mark it. Awesome. Jacob awoke from his sleep. He thought, surely the Lord is in this place. But what's the second part say? And I was not aware of it. Jacob had a, a mission. He was assigned a task. Dad blessed him and sent him off. And he was intent on that mission. And he was so intent to do the thing he was supposed to do that he came to a place where God was and he didn't even know God was there. And I look at my life and I think sometimes that's my story. Because I got stuff to do. I have a task that has to be done. I have a to-do list that I've got to check off. Anybody else like real, really OCD about that? Like if you write 10 things on a list at the end of the day, all 10 have to be checked off. I'm not that bad, but I can be that bad. Because I, I, I learned along the way, I never get to everything. So I'm okay with that. It's not that I, and some days, well, other stuff happens. But nonetheless, I used to be really like, if I have 10 things on a list, I have to do all 10, and it would haunt me until I did all 10. And I was so intent on doing all 10, sometimes I would miss more important things because I had a list. And the more important thing wasn't on the list. And Jacob had a list. Go get a wife. That's pretty important, yes? By the way, Tuesday is Valentine's Day. (laughs) Jacob had a task and a job. And into that process of doing his job, God showed up and he didn't even know he was there. It's tragic. You know what's just as tragic? The story of Samson. Samson, the strong man, the hero, the judge, the deliverer of Israel, who, because of things that had happened from his birth, was blessed with great strength. And of course, we know the source of his strength <laughs> was his hair. Why is that funny? That's what the Bible says. It was his hair. And he had this 
this person, Delilah, you may have heard of her, who was kind of working for the enemy. And she asked him time and time and time again, Samson, what's the secret of your strength? What's the secret? And he, he flirted around. In fact, through this whole process of give and take, he would tell her something this, if you tie me with fresh ropes, if you do this, whatever. And, and, and until finally, she must have worn him out. Boy. And he told her the secret to his strength. I just have a hard time being still. And sometimes it's my own anxiety. Sometimes it's my own stuff. Sometimes it's, I just got stuff to do. There's, there's always something else. And it looks like that something else, if I don't do it, well, let me, let me quote here. The mountains are going to give way and fall into the heart of the sea. And the, the waters will roar and foam. It feels like that. And so I faced that choice of priority. It's like Adam and Eve with that tree. Who gets to set the rules? It's like you and I. When with the demands of a day closing in on us, we get to choose. Will we prioritize something as simple as being still and knowing that he is God. It's interesting, that's built into the commandments. There's this thing called a Sabbath. I read an awesome book um, a couple months ago. It's called Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann. If you're interested in a little heavy reading. Because it's, you know, one of those things. couple quotes. I love this. The Sabbath is a practical divestment so that neighborly engagement rather than production and consumption defines our lives. Sabbath is an acknowledgement that what is needed is given and doesn't have to be seized. God says to this people, Israel, who had been slaves to Pharaoh under his relentless demand of productivity that the God that rescued you from slavery, the God that brought you out of Egypt is a God who gives you the privilege of resting, of finding time just to be still and know that your life is not defined by what you make or what you can afford or what you consume but rather by who you know.